Welcome in. The, th- the theme of the song is uh, is appropriate for today's episode. There is indeed a bit of a girl fight going down. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. We're setting up for Coda Radio episode 552. First episode of the new year. And uh, CNET's got some hot coverage of the new TVs introduced at CES. Which is a totally appropriate because I just had to buy a new TV because my TV died. So, of course, the next business week, they're announcing brand new incredible televisions. Hey, guys, want to see something really cool? I've never seen this before in a television, but this is LG's transparent OLED TV. And yes, it's actually going on sale. This is a 77-inch OLED TV that you can actually see through to the wall behind or whatever you want to put behind that TV. And it's a normal television in the beginning with a black screen and everything else you'd expect. And at the push of a button, that little black film goes right down into its little hidey hole and turns into this transparent TV. Now, as you can imagine, there's a whole lot of cool things that LG has built into this TV to show off that transparent mode. You can go into its always ready screensaver and choose from a bunch of different things in the background. You can show a fish tank, you can show a clock, weather. You can basically make the TV behave as if it's kind of like a window out into the world. And you can put pretty much anything else you want on that screen. Of course, this is a regular television too. So again, you could just press a button, bring up that black screen and make it look just like a standard OLED TV. Now this is a 77 inch television. LG says that the performance is gonna be similar to maybe like a C4, not their very highest end televisions of the G4 and M4 series. It's not gonna be quite as bright, but again, this is gonna be a really nice looking television generally, given the fact that OLED has excellent picture quality altogether. Of course, this transparent OLED TV is not gonna be cheap. They haven't given us the price yet, but a 77 inch TV that's this custom, I'd expect it to be many thousands of dollars. But this is also the first time this technology has been rolled out to a standard consumer television. So again, we've seen these in concepts before. We've seen them on digital signage. They're generally used for commercial purposes. This is the first time that I've seen something like this actually shown as a real television. Now, LG says that around the bottom and the side of this, this furniture you see, that's going to be kind of custom. The TV itself is right above that furniture. That's going to be kind of the final design here. So you'll see all of that. But again, you'll see in the market ways to I mean, that's pretty TV wild, man. More like furniture blend in even more. I I don't know, man. That's pretty wild. Although, kind of a neat display set. I don't think you're probably going to be watching a lot of content on it. It's going to have to be custom content, but man, what a what a conversation piece, I suppose. Coda Radio is warming up. Consider joining that Matrix chat room, so that way you can interact live, give us that live vibe, and also uh, help title the son of a gun. Get, get a title under your belt before we hit 560. It also helps us validate why I'm doing this live or not. I sometimes wonder. <laughs> not so much, uh, like, I don't know, it's just, it's a lot of work. So we do it for the live chat room, right? I mean, of course, I, I totally understand that not everybody can get in that chat room. But if you can, that's why we're doing it, is to get you in there and interact with us. Pretty neat set-top box. Pretty neat. Now, let's shift gears just for a moment. You got to have some content for a television like that. And it appears that, at least here in the States, Americans are choosing to have less and less content. It seems that there's a mass streaming service canceling going on. For a lot of video consumers, the amount paid for streaming services is going through the roof. Perhaps it's your New Year's resolution to try and get rid of some of those services. 
Turns out you're not alone. A new report from The Wall Street Journal finds significantly more Americans are starting to hit the cancel button. That could be good news for your money in unexpected ways. Joining me now is Sarah Krauss, Los Angeles Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. I, I mean, I personally think part of it is they have those new uh, services that say, hey, did you know how much you're really paying in subscriptions? And when you look at it and mass, you're like, wait a minute, I haven't watched HBO in a year. Why am I still paying for that every month? I'm sorry to call out HBO, but it was true. I, so I canceled. Sarah, your it's turn. true. <laughs> I, I think more Americans are looking holistically at what they're paying for their streaming services. And what started as a relatively low bill in the early days has slowly and steadily ballooned to the point where people are saying, you know what, we're actually getting closer to what the cable bill was. And we hated that. And we went to streaming because it was cheaper. And now it's not. So you, what you really see is more households being strategic about what they use and turning services on and off. So some customers that have canceled are going back, but they're being much more more strategic about it. So really what the streaming platforms are up against are much savvier consumers who are using the flexibility of streaming, the ability to turn it on and off to their advantage. Well, and the streamers are getting more savvy in that they used to just say, look, here's a whole show and you can watch the whole season and binge watch it if you want. So you would do your trial month or whatever and then cancel. And now the streamers are like, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to slowly roll these out in the old-fashioned way. No, people are just canceling their subscriptions so they can afford to support independent media. That's what I want to tell myself. Tell myself that. Tell myself that. That feels comfortable. (laughs) That's what makes facts work best. Things are comfortable. All right. I feel like like what we need is... um, we need some, we need like a DJ. We need like a, a, a music guy who's like playing, playing tracks for us. Wouldn't that be fun? Somebody out there had a little bit of a DJ streak in him. Want to come on here? I'd go take a piss. That'd be sweet. I love taking pisses. Uh, all right. Before we hone in on our topics du jour today, I want to play a little ancillary stories because tech is always dramatically impacted by the economic performance of the U.S. overall because it's so reliant on investment. And it seems we have ourselves a deal. ...have reached a government spending deal for the moment. Emily Wilkins is in Washington with its details and likelihood of passage. Emily? Hey, Kelly. Well, yeah, shutdown fears eased over the weekend after congressional leaders struck a deal yesterday. And this is on the overall spending number for the current fiscal year. So it's $1.6 trillion, and it reflects the agreement that Congress and the White House reached last June over the debt limit, plus the side deal to increase non-defense spending. Now, Speaker Mike Johnson was able to negotiate several cuts of previously allocated funding. He's going to be rescinding $6 billion in COVID emergency funding and an additional $10 billion in cuts for the IRS this year bringing total cuts for the agency to $20 billion. But while Johnson got Democrats to agree to the cuts, it is not enough for hardline conservatives in his party. The House Freedom Caucus called the bill a, quote, total failure for not doing more to reduce spending. In a Dear Colleague letter, Johnson acknowledged that the plan would likely not satisfy everyone, but vowed to fight to attach additional conservative priorities to the bill. Now, Johnson didn't specify which priorities he'd push for, but measures House Republicans passed in previous bills would fail in a Democratic-controlled Senate. That's going to make any wannabe additions to the spending bills difficult. All right, so we'll and see, in other words. now that overall spending is agreed to, the House and Senate, they... We'll st- see. We'll see. All right. Come on, come on. We'll spend more time on it when it's a done deal. In the meantime, enough speculation. The speculation stuff gets so tiring. Get, just report on it when it's actually news. You know what I mean? 
So when I had uh, my TV die on me, which just happened uh, on New Year's Eve, I was shocked, shocked, shocked at the size of TVs. And I mean, shocked <laughs> at the size of TVs and how freaking cheap they are. You know, televisions and electronics have really avoided inflation in a big way. Hey, everybody, I got a huge TV right here. This is the TCL 115-inch television. TCL is saying this is the world's largest QD mini LED TV. That's kind of their own brand. Long story short, I haven't seen a TV that's mass-produced at this size yet. We'll see what happens later in the show. Maybe somebody matches it, but... This TV is gigantic at 115 inches. This is the 115QM891G. That's a mouthful, and the TV itself is just gigantic. So you're looking at, it's about nine and a half feet diagonal, eight and a half feet along the bottom, a little bit under five feet up and down, and I'm standing next to this thing. I'm six feet tall. Uh, this thing is almost as tall as me on the stand. Now, TCL put all the good stuff into this television for picture quality. It's mini LED backlighting. They're saying 20,000 local dimming zones, up to 5,000 nits. It's super bright. I'm sitting here watching it. The colors really pop. This TV is kind of the step-up version, the larger version of my overall editor's choice for image quality for the money last year. That was the TCL QM8 series. They also make that. We'll talk about that in a little bit, the new version of that. But this 115, absolutely gigantic. If you were looking for a projector, for example, projector image quality not going to be anywhere near this good 115 inch now so when i was shopping i you know i'm pretty familiar with the samsung brand i'm, I'm very familiar with the lg brands and as i've traveled and stayed at like hotels and airbnbs the lg televisions have always impressed me the most above the samsung so i kind of went in and a lot of people on twitter recommended the lg televisions but i was shocked <laughs> as i mentioned by the price of the tcl televisions I really don't know if TCL is – is this a good brand? Does anybody out there know if – is TCL like the new Vizio? I actually don't even know if I saw Vizio televisions. I saw Vizio soundbars. But I don't think I saw a single Vizio television now that I think about it, at least not at Costco, which is what I used to associate with Vizio. So I don't know. Uh, if you know if TCL, is that a solid brand or not? Um, because I have two more televisions that are eventually going to go on me. And I really don't want to spend much money on those ones. They're like bedroom TV and an outdoor TV. Those are cheaper televisions. So if TCL is a decent brand, like is it above the Roku televisions and the Amazon televisions? Like where does this stuff rank anymore? Because it just can't get nearly as bright or as dark. Of course, that black levels, local dimming, all the good mini LED-ness, that's going to really get you a great picture. So again, haven't reviewed this TV yet, but from what I've seen so far, really, really nice. Now, the price, TCL saying under $20,000. Of course, that's not cheap, but if you're in that price range and you're looking for something, you know, around 110, maybe you want to step up, get a 115. This TV is available uh, coming a little bit later this year. We're going to look at some other new TCL TVs right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That That's fascinating. I mean, 115 inch. I was restricted in size because where I had to install the television. That is just phenomenal. I mean, you'd really want to be full on like what? Six, ten feet back? Right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, I just don't know about that. All right. Let's do a quick recap. I mean, this is CES day. Let's do uh, a quick recap. And then I want to get into uh, more aspects of uh, the tech news. But we can't we can't play some of this stuff with, uh, you know, with the commercial streams going. So let me sort that out. 
see if this is what we want. This will be the last thing. I don't know if it's worth watching. Let's see. This is supposed to be NVIDIA's CES gaming event uh, cut down, I believe. I haven't watched this one yet, so we'll screen it together. Today, we are announcing the Super Series. Let's take a look. Whoa! Cool. Oh, man. Man, yeah. Fuck yeah. AI. Woo! AI! It's a flying GPU. Yeah! Woo! All right. So we now have a 40 Super Series. Super fast, super powerful. Super power draw, no doubt, as well. This is the RTX 4080 Super. For gamers, it can power fully ray traced games at 4K. It is 1.4x faster than the RTX 3080 Ti without frame gen in the most graphically intensive games. With 836 AI tops, DLSS frame generation delivers an extra performance boost, making the 4080 Super twice as fast as a 3080 Ti. Creators can generate video with stable video diffusion one and a half times faster. All right, on. okay, all right, okay, all right, okay. I'll drop a... Uh, no, I won't. I'm not going to drop a link, and there's nobody in the fucking chat room. So we're not going to drop a link. <laughs> no reason to. All right, I'm going to bring up the commercial streams. Whoa, 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 slow down. Holy cow. Uh, all right, so here we go. It's commercial stream time, boys and girls. Thank you for being here ahead of time if you have been. Uh, I tease because I care, and I'm glad to have you here. I present you our 800-pound gorilla. Uh, I believe who is Apple in this uh, scenario. Stand by as we bring the commercial streams online. Commercial streams are up. Hello, YouTubes and Twitch and Ustream and Twitter. Come on and get settled. We're set up for Coda Radio 552. We're going to play a few clips that will give us some context for today's episode. Mr. Dominic is in route, so we're going to get started here in just a moment. That chat room is open. It's why we do the shows. We love to get that live interaction. It's why we do the show live, I should say. You can join the chat room by going to coder.show slash matrix, where you're also going to get an opportunity to vote. In fact, let's start that. Let's get that boat going. All right. Firing it off. 
And let's get into some of our stories of the week. It seems like Apple's having a pretty bad start financially to 2024. The market's cooling quick. Welcome back. Shares of Apple are off to their worst start since 1982. Critics say the company's lack of a clear AI business plan is partly to blame. But Morgan Stanley today... How do you like that? You can have a billion users with $1,000 devices, but if you don't have an AI plan, the market's going to punish you. You catching this? Saying they do have a stealth AI strategy. Deirdre Bosa joins us now for today's Tech Check. Deirdre? Kelly, that's right. Apple hasn't had the kind of AI halo that others like Microsoft and Google and Amazon have been able to rely on when the core business isn't performing the way it's supposed to necessarily. But Tim Cook's strategy, it has focused on integrating AI within its ecosystem of devices and services. So instead of a GPT moment, Apple sees AI as something that blends into the user experience and is embedded into your device rather than requiring a change of habits, like intentionally going to a chat GPT or BART. So instead of a chatbot, we could see a generative AI-enabled iPhone, an operating system. That's Morgan Stanley mo- note this morning that Kelly referred to says that even more important than Apple's current fundamentals recovering, 2024 will be the year when Apple's, quote, edge AI opportunity comes to fruition and catalyzes a new upgrade cycle, as well as boosting services spend per user. Now, let me explain this a little bit because it's a very different strategy. Edge computing is the idea that large language models will be run on devices like smartphones and computers, any other devices as well. It could be the Apple Watch instead of the cloud. And remember that Apple has an installed base of more than two billion. So that's a lot of devices that it can work on. That framework, it's called MLX. It even utilizes the Apple ecosystem further by allowing developers to build models on on Apple's powerful in-house silicon. So Apple hasn't overly marketed this isn't it funny how they mentioned the user base value, but only in the context of how it could be useful for AI? It's not useful for other things, but 2 billion users, you know, for AI purposes. Now, of course, Apple realizes this is a problem. There are no dummies over there, and they know how to work this. So they have been stealthy releasing since before Christmas little leaks about their AI plans, including firing up a GitHub project and seeding bits of information to the press. Shares of Apple off to their worst start since 1982 after logging declines in every session this year. But could 24 be the year Apple becomes a bigger player in the AI race? Our Deirdre Bosa has that story in today's Tech Check. Morning, Dee. Hey, good morning, Carl. So if last year was all about enabling generative AI, the GPUs, the compute power needed for large language models, this year is all about applications, and Apple could be a dark horse. Tim Cook's strategy has focused on integrating AI within its ecosystem of devices and services. So instead of a GPT moment, Apple sees AI as something that blends into the user experience and is embedded into your device rather than requiring a change of habits, like intentionally going to a chat GPT or a BARD. So instead of a chatbot, we could see a Gen AI-enabled iPhone, an operating system. A Morgan Stanley note this morning says that Even more important than Apple's current fundamentals recovering, 2024 will be the year when Apple's, quote, edge AI opportunity comes to fruition and catalyzes a new upgrade cycle, as well as boosting services spend per user. Now, edge is the idea that large language models will be run on devices like smartphones instead of... So now, but here's the funny thing, is Microsoft's basically making the same exact play. So once again, Apple and Microsoft are kind of paired up against each other. Microsoft now worth a hundred billion dollars less than Apple. That is the narrowest gap seen since November of 21. 
Which stock is a better bet from investors right now? Joining us this morning, Jeffrey's analyst Brent Thill and Oppenheimer analyst Martin Yang. Brent just named Microsoft the top pick, raised his target from 400 to 450. Martin is a $200 target and a buy rating on Apple. Guys, it's great to see you. Brent, let's talk about, I guess, the momentum on Microsoft. Um, what does it have at this point that Apple does not, even if they may be in somewhat different businesses? Yeah, what Microsoft has this year is the AI move. They have the best AI lineup uh, in software, and they'll be monetizing in the back half of the year. Yeah, there's a little bit of hype in, inside the stock and AI going into the beginning of this year, but we think that a little. from a fundamental perspective, they have the strongest lineup, and you're going to really see that uh, in, the, in the back half. So you have uh, prices going higher. You effectively have value creation for clients going higher. Uh, you know this management team uh, delivers margins over time. Even while AI is expensive, we, we believe they will deliver uh, upside to margins. And you have the consistency uh, of, of Nadella and Amy Hood, which have been phenomenal uh, co-pilots to fly with. And this co-pilot offering that's coming is going to be uh, a huge impact for, uh, for everyone, both consumers and enterprises, probably more, more likely enterprises first. Well, this guy, huh? Uh, so we're, we're, we continue to be uh, as excited about Microsoft as, as, as ever. We think the software industry has a... He talks like a Microsoft guy, that's for sure. <laughs> wow. I really like the jargon, though. I'm into it these days, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I hate it. But I also, I love it. Like, I just, I'll just sit there with a fork for a minute and eat it up. All right, so before we started the commercial streams, Weez was talking about a new NVIDIA AI chip that they announced at CES. Um, and here's a little report on that from a Bloomberg technology. I don't think they have the best production standards, but I think we probably should have a little uh, info on this brand new chip from NVIDIA. What are these chips that we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, these are really just updates to its existing range of chips. What it's done is put in a few more new um, components that are going to help with the uh, AI processing, some new cores, some better man memory bandwidth, and it's also uh, adjust the prices, made the prices a little bit more attractive as well. Just an update, Ian, yet the stock rally is hard. We're back at a all-time high for NVIDIA shares. Best day since August the 21st, 2023. Is it just that we needed a moon music shift? Is it just because AI actually is everything to this particular company? Well, I mean, clearly, in, I think the last thing you said is the answer there. Clearly, AI has been an enormous benefit for this company already. It's proved materially that this is real, that this is about actual sales and actual deployment. Again, NVIDIA comes out here and says, hey, don't forget about us, this AI PC that Intel, that AMD has been talking about. We can do this too, and actually we think we're better than they are. So again, that's likely to press the right kind of button with investors, and, and we're seeing that reaction. It's interesting, the timing, though. It's a CES keynote adjacent CES because it's virtual. I'm about to get on a plane and go to Vegas, hopefully. The story with, with NVIDIA was the H100, you know, a GPU that goes into a server design that goes into a data center. You build your large language models. This seems like NVIDIA reminding everyone, hey, we're actually pretty good at PC. Is it going to be an important business for them? I just I, mean, I, I don't like the way they say PC, PC. Like, I, it's so reductive. Up until about a year ago, it was the biggest. It was the one thing we talked about. GeForce was their main product. The PC was, was what they were. That's where the volume is, right? So it is, 
going to stay an important business for them. Right now, all the profits, all of the major gains are from the data center. But yeah, of course, they used to open CES every year with, hey, this bright, new, shiny thing. And this is them reminding people, hey, we're still here as well. You really need to pay attention to us in this market. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. I mean, I, last year, part of the story among many was kind of Jensen Huang, the, mm. the leather jacket wearing next Elon Musk type. Mm. Uh, maybe today of all days, we won't, we won't make that comparison. Oh, okay. um, right, but. I want to switch over since they've kind of strayed away from CES, and I kind of want to keep it CES focused. Uh, we'll t- we'll just sample a little bit. Mac Rumor seems to be posting coverage right now of day one. We'll just take a little gander of what they got over there. So in this video, we're going to go over everything interesting that I saw at these two events. Starting off with Samsung and its first look at its new products and innovations for 2024. This year, Samsung came out hot with some beefed-up tech on its TVs and monitors. Of course, I just bought a new TV. Of course. TVs are always such a thing at CES, aren't they? Transparent LCD was a big one this year. Go figure. Is it all TVs today? Ah, here we go. This looks like a non-TV-related innovation. Let's take a look factor and you can group multiple frames together for music or you can also group multiple uh together with a sound bar so you have a very discreet sound bar like surround sound setup which is really really cool then at ces we saw a few interesting new products that are going to make its way to the market here in 2024 and starting with narwhal this company has a new <laughs> robot mop that and vacuum combo oh That's- it's a mop vacuum you know that i that because I've got, I've got in my, you know, at least in the RV, it's all, it's all like linoleum or whatever. Hmm. I don't have any carpet, so I've never really needed a, a Roomba because it just seems like it'd be not quite as effective. But that, that would be interesting. Wonder how it would deal when the slides are in versus the slides are out. That's honestly perfect for pet owners like myself, whose dogs shed a ton and that hair gets tangled in the brushes. Happens to all of my vacuums and it's really frustrating. I I get wife hair. That's what happens to me is wife hair. This new Narwhal Frio X Ultra has the ability to suck up pet dander without it getting caught or tangled in the brush. Thanks to some great new design innovations. All right. So we got a vacuum. Uh, I mean, again, the full video is on the Mac Rumors YouTube channel. Uh, hmm. Okay, robot iPhone stand or something? What do we got here? To make sure that you're always in oh, the frame. Charge had some old retro Mac-inspired fun. GAN chargers that honestly look really cool if you're into this sort of stuff. It reminds me of the old Macintosh computers. Well, that's, and, it uh, reminds you of the old Macintosh computers um, because it looks like an old Macintosh computer. Ah, I think. I just think. Right, you got to get in that chat room, coder.show slash matrix, if you're going to bang suggest. The title bot is Alive. And there is drama, and they mentioned Elon. I wasn't going to play this clip, but I think we have a minute. Let me see if I've, I haven't heard. Yeah, I think we have a minute. So I wasn't going to get to it, but we're gonna we're gonna play the Elon drama going on. You know, you know, eventually it was going to come down to money. Oh oh, <laughs> you hear that? They weren't live. First of all, he missed his he missed his in. Clearly they. They brought his mic hot before he was done sitting down. It's all very subtle, but just take a listen. Uh, <laughs> a little too long there on the draw, buddy. <laughs> uh, 
And now to a piece that was in the journal, Wall Street Journal over the weekend, it says some executives and board members at Elon Musk's companies are persistently concerned about his drug use. Musk has previously smoked marijuana in public and on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he has uh, said that he has a prescription for ketamine. Now, the journal report uh, cites people who have witnessed Mr. Musk's uh, alleged drug use and others who have knowledge of it as saying that Musk has used LSD, cocaine, ecstasy, and psychedelic mushrooms, often at parties, private parties around the world. An attorney for Musk told the journal that uh, Mr. Musk is regularly and randomly tested at SpaceX and has never failed a test. Uh, The journal reports that board members at Tesla have spoken to each other about their concerns, but haven't said anything uh, formal that would end up in meeting minutes. Uh, But among the concerns, you might think, well, Private, right? Well, if it's illegal, illegal drug use could violate federal contracts and would also break a company company uh, policies. You know, you did have an opportunity to do all this in college, like most of us. I don't see why he would still. When I first um, heard, I thought, what drugs are still illegal? You walk down the street <laughs> in New York City, and you get a contact high anywhere you go. I can understand the key man theory. Yeah, because. These companies, both SpaceX and Tesla, are entirely dependent on Elon Musk still being there. Even Ron Barron has told us that, one of his most fervent defenders, a huge long-term bullish investor. Mm -hmm. I'm really surprised Uh, this is the take. And I'm surprised this narrative has gotten as far as it has. Uh, Drug use has been a fundamental part of Silicon Valley innovation since the very beginning. Both Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak attributed their drug use to some of their success. You'll find people quoting Steve Jobs about LSD on Twitter today. DHH just did it. It has been a well-established fact that drug use has been a big part of Silicon Valley. Let's go. Let's go find it. Actually, let's go find uh, DHH here. Mm-hmm. Not SSH. <laughs> it wasn't what a day or two ago. Lots of him ranting about his app, though. So it might be. That might be hard. Here we go. Here's the quote. Quote, taking LSD was a profound experience. It reinforced my sense of what was important, creating things instead of making money, putting things back into the stream of history and into human consciousness as much as I could. So this is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs ran Apple. Steve Jobs ran Pixar. He ran a few other things, kind of pretty high profile companies. I never heard the board members freaking out about Steve Jobs' pot use or LSD use. So why are we uh, all freaked out here about, do we know if he uses cocaine and ketamine? I don't know. I don't understand why it's not performance-based, I guess, is what my point is. Like if the drugs become a problem. All right, well, maybe they're, they're going to say that here. Maybe that's going to be CNBC's take. Maybe that's what they're about to say, and I just cut them off. Tesla are entirely dependent on Elon Musk still being there. Even Ron Barron has told us that, one of his most fervent defenders, a huge long-term bullish investor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, we'll see. I, I, he's 50-something. He's in his mid- Yeah, he's young 50s. I think he's 52 or 53. Yeah. Still dabbling, dabbling a bit. And the, you know, the psychedelic drugs are, there's a big... Well, ketamine is the one that Matthew resurgent. Yeah, but This that, is not the discussion I was hoping for. Else, uh, yeah. Among other things. 
and you know, if I guess if in college you skip that that period, uh, oh my god, you know, people. This well, is their insight. It took me five seconds to think about that DHH requoting Steve Jobs thing. They couldn't pull that. They couldn't pull up. They couldn't pull up all the previous Silicon Valley folks and tech founders that have admitted to using drugs. This is their best. Surely they're going to do better. Well, I mean, you know, some people think it's mind. Remember, Timothy, you don't remember. Probably. No, Timothy don't. Leary was a huge yes, like, uh, advocate of the mind expanding properties. And there's and, a huge portion in Silicon Valley that thinks it. There we go. Yeah. Here we go. Exactly. Very we got there. Experiment with some of these psychedelic drugs. It actually opens your mind to the possibility for additional. She's over there on the East Coast, though, thinking these Silicon Valley boys are just crazy. What this is. She's like these these West Coast boys. Experiment with some of these psychedelic drugs. It actually opens your mind to the possibility for additional creative uses. I've never tried any of them, but. Uh, oh, yeah. No. Yeah. I'm not going to. She's got a big smirk there. You see that? I wonder if she has this. That part. This is the best part of the conversation. Now, see this. It, it, we got there. We got there in the last minutes. People think it's mind. Remember, Timothy, you don't remember. Probably. No, Timothy Leary was a huge yes, like, I, uh, advocate of the mind expanding properties. And there's and, a huge portion in Silicon Valley that thinks a portion of people that think yeah, the same thing. That exactly. Think if you very lightly experiment with some of these psychedelic drugs. It actually opens your mind to the possibility for additional <laughs> creative uses. I've never tried any of them, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to weigh in. Okay. You said silently. Like a kid. No, I said it, it was, a, you know, college was you're going to They're playing them out. It seemed like you get beyond it by the time you're 50, but maybe not. Playing them out. But, but <laughs> it, it, it isn't a private yeah. company. It's a, it's a, a publicly, publicly held company right. and a defense contractor. Um, All right. Well, far out. Yeah. Far out, man. Yeah. You're over 30. You just don't get it. Uh, <laughs> don't trust. What was it? Anybody over 30? Don't trust anybody over 30. Yeah. Or if you remember... The 60s or Oh my god, they're still playing them out. <laughs> oh, oh, and then a hard cut. Oh, uh, man. I, that was so good. At least they got there, right? I got to give them credit. They got there. All right, I'm going to check in with Mr. Dominic, make sure uh, he's all right and kicking. And in the meantime, I'm going to go for, uh, let's play the top song on LN Beats right now. Let's go to the top 100, and it's uh, Not Far Away by Alan C. Paul. All right? Let's give it a listen.
good. That was pretty good. I mean, I'm not even usually, I don't know, would you call that jazz? I don't even think I'm never typically call myself a jazz guy. Alan C. Paul with unclassified, kind of like unjazzified, I guess, not far away. That was pretty great. Well, I haven't heard back from Mr. Dominic yet. Um, so I have one thing I do want to play. I was going to hold back. I wasn't going to play this clip because I know how you guys get. I didn't want to upset you. But uh, since we got time to kill, we might as well get into the triggering things. Might as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tease. Mostly. Well, how do we do DEI now? Is Claudine Gay, was she the best person for that leadership role at Harvard? And, and when, I mean, I saw guys like Jason Furman die on this hill. That's the hill he's going to die on, that we're not going to outsource getting rid of this. But was she the right person from the very beginning? Look, I don't know because I wasn't there making those decisions. But I think that people have to ask themselves, are, are we doing enough um, the individual speaking now is Jay Clayton, the former SEC chairman, and he now is on the CNBC payroll. Rigorous selection for these positions. Obviously, these positions, like I said, $14 billion of annual revenue. The, you need somebody that has deep management experience. The context here is that the DEI initiatives in corporate America appears to be dying in universities and in corporate America. The like. Why do we care, though? It's a private university. But, but, Let them wither it, on the vine, and if, they, if this damages their reputation. It, it, that's, a, that's private companies. Okay, we still care a lot about what private companies do in our society. They're subject to lots of checks. They may not be subject to the public shareholder checks, but they're certainly check, subject to regulation and, and the like. If you're, if you're a private company in the oil and gas industry, you're subject to all sorts of regulation. But you're, Harvard moved on this because they, they saw job placement for their graduates drop significantly. They saw the number of uh, people wanting to get into the school drop significantly this year. And they saw donations down. So yeah, finally some checks from right, the outside right. on, on what's going on. But look, look, at the, look at the place that universities hold in our society. What, what do parents, what are parents willing to do to get children a ticket to these exclusive universities? They're willing to do, that tells you how valuable they are. And look, we've all benefited from what universities have produced. The fact that, the fact that people take what they learn at universities out into the world, and you know, we are the leaders in the world in so many industries, that has its roots in our universities, without a doubt. Now, we can't lose that. And if it takes a little bit of a, a kick from the government or a little bit of kick from the private sector to get that kind of accountability and introspection, so be it. There's been some damage. There's no doubt. I, I, and I was thinking about it. I, uh, so I have all these sweatshirts from my daughter who, who went and I wear them now. And people, it causes conversation. You came in today. <laughs> you I'm, came I'm, in today. I was going to talk to you about Bitcoin. About I said you're an adjunct Bitcoin. professor, yeah. University of Pennsylvania, and here we are. You know, ten minutes later, that's all we've talked about. It's uh, this day. It's it's not good. We should keep talking about it, though. We can't. I, guess. We can't, don't, I mean, what happens with Bitcoin? Are they going to? Is the SEC going to sign off on a Bitcoin ETF? You think? I, I think approval is inevitable. And, 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 Imminently. Uh, and I and I think it. The, there's nothing left to decide. Mind you, this is a former SEC chairman here. I know. And, and I, look, I credit the SEC for where they are. What, what has, what, where are we? We're comfortable with the disclosure. Joe just went through the cost of investing in a Bitcoin ETF. People need to know what the cost of doing it is. They need to know, you know about the underlying Bitcoin market. Is the Bitcoin underlying trading market something that is, what I would say, is robust enough, efficacious enough 
where you can rely on it. It, it is much better today than it was five years ago. Five years ago, there was wash sales, there was laddering, there was all sorts of things that you wouldn't want to make available to the general public um, because of that risk. And the last thing, and I think this is missed, is the technology to actually provide the product, the custodying, um, the create, the redeem. This is, a, this is a big step, not just for Bitcoin, but for finance generally. If you can digitize, tokenize underlying assets and trade that way, that's a potential significant change across finance, not just in the you know, crypto space. Well, we'll stop there for a moment. Um, you know, I think that is interesting commentary just because, like I said, he is the former SEC chairman. So he's probably a bit of a topic expert on that. I'm going to, you know, I guess we're going to kill time. I could play more clips. I don't know. I think I don't really want to kill the stream yet just in case he pops online and can join us. So I think I want to keep going for a little bit longer so that way uh, we have a shot. I thought I would play something from Computer Chronicles for a moment if you will so indulge me. Um, I just got done watching over the weekend a documentary that I want to encourage that you watch. It's called The Y2K Bomb. Uh, it's an HBO Max series, and it is almost 80, maybe 90% source material from the 90s, like source footage, put together to really tell the story of starting a few years before the year 2000, when people started to raise alarms. Then it kind of shows you the people that you know, made a buck on the panic and uh, all of that. It's really fascinating. I really recommend it if uh, you were around back then or you weren't. Either way, I was. My New Year's Eve was spent hanging out with my coworker in his living room, who I liked, um, chilling, waiting for the year to tick over so that way we could get in the car and drive into the office and do a systems check. So, and of course, everything was fine. But uh, this Computer Chronicles, I'll just play a portion of it. They have a segment here I want to play for you. Not the whole thing, just this, just this portion of... Uh, of, on their Y2K coverage. I think this should be, this should be pretty fun. Word, uh, word processing document, obviously. Exactly. All right, Norton 2000. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, while we're focusing on the PC side of the Y2K problem, the big fear that most people have is not about their personal computers, but about the massive mainframe systems that run the power companies, the banks, the airlines, most of our basic services. Here's a look at what some experts have to say about what will happen with those come January 1. On a bright spring day in San Francisco, the millennium bug is probably not foremost in people's thoughts. But hidden inside most basic services, from water and power to streetlights and buses, are embedded chips and software that might depend on the date and time to operate. That is what worries cities like San Francisco, which began its Y2K probe four years ago. With the embedded systems, we're looking at fire trucks. You know, it's a, it's a whole different look at the world and, and the valves on the water system. If there's an embedded system in a valve and it fails, what will probably happen? If the valve is open, it will probably stay open. If it's closed, it will probably stay closed. Is that a bad failure? Is that something we can fix over time? Also, virtually all valves have manual overrides. But has anybody used them in the last 20 years? Susceptible chips can show up in unlikely places. For example, the city's cable car system, over 100 years old, runs from electric generators that are controlled by computer. 
light rail vehicles are almost completely automated, and even buses and fire trucks have embedded microprocessors. We are finding that with heavy equipment, there are other issues with maintenance cycles, and there are pre-built maintenance cycles for things, for example, like water pumps and the ladders that go up and the engine. And some of those systems on some fire trucks, if they are not serviced, don't work. The Wells Fargo Bank approached Y2K in a different way by building a parallel banking system and then advancing the dates. So a fictitious customer can make a deposit or transfer funds on December 30th, 1999, and a fictitious teller could see those funds appear on January 3rd. We've created a miniature bank of our own.、Um, actually, if it was,、uh, you could pick up this environment and probably sell it to some other banking institution because it handles a couple hundred thousand、um, customer accounts. These aren't real accounts; these are test accounts that we have out there. And we process the full day's activities from、uh, printing out statements to、uh, sorting checks. Wells Fargo's bank within a bank has everything. From PC banking to receipt printers to ATMs, but what happens at midnight, December 31st? So far, so good. The tests themselves, we're in contact with them. They're working pretty good. We have、um, until June of this year to complete everything. So a number of them are getting into place now and being set up. And as an industry as a whole, I think we are in very good shape.、Um, people have taken us very seriously, especially in the financial services in- industry, and the work is taking. Care of.、Um, I'm very comfortable. Assuming you can withdraw cash from your ATM in January, will you be able to spend it, say, for an airplane ticket? Airports face the known problem of finding and fixing embedded controllers with an additional complication: they will be counting on every other airport to do the same. It's a real problem because we're not the only airport in the country.、Um, a lot of airport.、Uh, Manufactured products are、uh, duplicated at other facilities, not necessarily airports, but、uh, other manufacturing facilities or、uh, public transportation hubs and that sort of thing. It's almost unbelievable the amount of inventory that we are going through、uh, from from some of the major components that make up the facility to some of the very minor things that、uh, that you would never. Think of、uh, unless you went through an exercise like uh, uh, like an inventory. The task is daunting to find every chip and program that might have a date function and rewrite or replace it. But some areas get immediate attention. We have to look at everything imaginable, I think. But you have to have、uh, you have to set a, set priorities, and the priority is the the safety security aspect. So. We have to maintain a secure airport. We have to provide safety for the traveling public. Embedded controllers are lurking everywhere, even in services that appear to be low tech. San Francisco's water supply comes by aqueduct from the Sierra Nevada mountains, using gravity as its main engine. But pumps, chemical systems, and valves are operated by programmable logic controllers, or PLCs. All of the chips have been inventoried, but what if one malfunctions? Actually, there's very little high tech. The, when this system was designed, it was it was a brilliant engineering feat、um, in the early part of the century, and most of that infrastructure is still in place. Where we have upgraded a number of, like you mentioned, valves, the the devices that move the valves,、um, the monitoring equipment. 
um, valves are either open or closed, and these types of valves don't close automatically if there's an electronic failure or a power failure. So most of we're very comfortable that the water will continue to flow by gravity even if there are Y2K issues. And I think, I really do, I think that people are going to be surprised that uh, uh, when uh, December 31st at midnight uh, comes around, uh, the world is not going to come to an end. Uh, airplanes are going to continue to fly, the lights aren't going to go out in the terminals, uh, the lights aren't going to go out on the freeways, and uh, I don't think it's going to be some of the massive failures that uh, has been portrayed uh, in the media recently. For the Computer Chronicles, I'm Sarah O'Brien. There you go. Isn't that fun? Now the number two song on Ellen Beats will, will play us out. I'll check in with Mr. Dominic later. I'm not quite sure. Thank you for making it. Uh, I don't know if we'll be back later, or maybe we'll do a stream tomorrow. I'll check with Mr. Dominic, see if he's okay, and then we'll reschedule. And I'll update you in the chat room, coder.show slash matrix, where you can always stay tuned over there, of course, on my Twitter feed, at Chris LES on Weapon X. <laughs> I mean, if he comes in while I'm playing this out, I'll, we'll keep going. We'll see. But I don't think so. I think maybe something came up, and he hasn't been able to check in. So it probably isn't, um, probably something that's going to wrap up too quick. But uh, definitely check out LNBeats.com. Lots of great value-for-value value music over there. Different styles for all types of tastes. We went from jazz to, I guess this is rock. Real World by Jimmy V. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for hanging out. And I hope to see you shortly with a full coat of radio. <laughs> all right. Reality.